will be in Colossians chapter 1. So chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks, Lucy. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever read a phrase in the Bible and felt, I'll never come up to that standard? You know, that's the devil really sort of getting in and sort of having a bit of a, a workout in our minds and giving us a low self-esteem that is not what God has planned for us. And this passage brings out one of those phrases, a life pleasing to God. The devil gets in and says, you're not worthy of that. You can't even come up to a little standard. But Paul tells us this morning in this passage that we can live a life pleasing to God. It's not a special recipe. It's not a special group. It's God working in our lives and us learning more about him. Now, how simple is that? I mean, yeah, a life pleasing to God. 
Now, Paul continues in the Thanksgiving section by informing the Colossians how, how he and Timothy actually specifically pray for them. And the initial success of the gospel in, in Colossae uh, does not lull them into, into slackening off their prayer efforts for the Colossians. Actually, it's quite the reverse. They're so excited by the way the Colossians have responded, it leads to even more intense prayer. They have continued to pray for them because of what God had already done for them and because of their faith and love. But Paul actually shares with the, with the, um, with the Colossians how they are praying on their behalf. And Paul reacquaints them with their, with their blessings, their obligations and their potential in Christ. So Paul's message this morning for us tells us that we do have the potential to live a life pleasing to God. Paul prays that God will fill the Colossians with knowledge of God's will through spiritual wisdom and discernment of every sort. The knowledge that Paul has in view has nothing to do with some secret doctrine or that is only for the elite or some hidden key that unlocks the mysteries of the universe or of the inner person. For Paul, understanding God's will involves recognising how Christ is a fulfilment of God's redemptive purposes, how God's salvation is open to all people, and how God intends for Christians to live in whatever situations they find themselves in. You hear stories of people in in Afghanistan and China and places that have been persecuted and they're actually joyful. They actually have a, um, have a fear for Western society because we have so much that they fear that our faith will be washed away with all the influences of Western society. Now, if you are a Jew, you would find knowledge of God's will exclusively through the law. And you say, well, how does that work? In Romans 2.17, it says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now for Paul, Christ is the end of the law. Romans 10.4 Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. 
and God's will is embodied in the person of Christ. Full knowledge only comes through the Holy Spirit and our complete commitment to Christ. This knowledge is extremely important in the Colossians situation. If they sufficiently grasp all of God's creation and his plan for the redemption of the world, revolves entirely around Christ, they will not be confused by the challenges of opponents or conned into engaging notions that have the appearance of wisdom. Paul doesn't want his readers to gain knowledge purely for its own sake. Knowledge of God's will will always have ethical implications because it requires us to bring our daily conduct and thinking into line with God's will. This reality may explain why many people do not want to know that will or why they attempt to tranquilize themselves with a more agreeable and seemingly sophisticated wisdom or a watered-down version of the gospel. Very similar to the thinking of the 60s and still occurs today. If it feels good, if it makes you feel good, do it. But wisdom that excludes Christ or makes him subordinate is counterfeit. The goal of being filled with the knowledge of God is to live a life worthy of the Lord and to please him in every way. The spiritual wisdom and understanding help us to know what is truly important in life from God's perspective. God gives us knowledge to lead us to deeper faith, greater virtue, and more devout service. Now, in this passage, Paul actually lists four traits of the spiritual life that are pleasing to God. In verse 10, we find two of them bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, we, we see being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And then in verse 12, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. So let's explore these a little bit more. And we'll look at that first one in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. Now this phrase allows us to remind people that Christians need to work out their faith in the way that they live. Some, it is true, mistakenly assume that they still must do something, something more to earn their salvation. They attend faithfully, they give sacrificially and accumulate a long history of good works so that they can make themselves feel worthy before God. Paul condemns this thought and, it's a, and that's a, that's a, that sort of salvation is based on works of law, as we see in Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So this has led many to see that such attempts is useless, a vain endeavour. But others make the mistake of thinking that they don't need to do anything. They mistakenly assume that 
all that God requires of us is to give token allegiance to Christ, like getting baptised, joining a church, attending occasionally and giving nominally. But Paul's denunciation of works does not mean that Christians can safely ignore work. If you turn to Ephesians 2, in verse 8, Paul tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when Paul opposed faith to works, he used the plural works and generally described them as works of law. Paul was reacting against those who believed that when they obeyed such laws, they placed God in their debt. They think to themselves, I've done what was required, and now God owes me something. That is so off the mark. The basic goal of human beings is to please God, but that cannot be accomplished through a calculating obedience to a manageable set of rules and regulations. The problem, as Paul explains, is that some rely on their obedience to the law for salvation. This belief used to be Paul's way of life. And he could reel off a long list of proud religious accomplishments. <laughs> if anyone had grounds for boasting religiously, it was Paul. But when Christ was revealed to him, he learned that his boast was empty, that he was still a sinner. He also learned that Christ gave himself for me. And therefore, salvation comes from God's gracious gift alone. Nothing we can do can change that. Faith for Paul is a trusting openness to what God has done for us in Christ. But when he contrasted faith and works, he was addressing the issue of how one receives salvation, not how salvation works out in our daily lives. I'll read that again. When he contrasted faith and works, he was addressing the issue of how one receives salvation, not how salvation works itself out in our daily lives. Now, Paul was not opposed to moral obedience to the law, even ritual obedience for Jews, as long as one did not think that salvation comes from one's own achievement or racial heritage. He uses the singular work in a positive sense to describe how salvation works itself out in our daily lives. In 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he refers to your work produced by faith. Galatians 5, 6, Paul says that faith works through love. And in Ephesians 2, 10, he says that while we are not saved by works, we are created for them. He urges others to repent, to turn to God and to do deeds worthy of their repentance. He also points out that God raised Christ from the dead so that we might bear, bear fruit to God. Romans 7, 4, 
and so that on the day of Christ, we, we, we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God in Philippians 1.11. So our first point, or the first trait that Paul brings out is bearing fruit in every good works. The second one is growing in the knowledge of God. Now, back in 1986, there was a book written with the title, All I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And that was written by minister and author Robert Fulgham. Now, unfortunately, the title reflects the attitude of some Christians towards growing in knowledge in their Christian faith. They think that all that they learned in Sunday school was all they need to know. And they're complacently apathetic about progressing beyond their elementary knowledge. Now, some people are afraid to study, and I can get that. I'm not a, I'm not a studier. But even just the basic reading of God's word is enough to get God's word into you and understanding what God has to say. Many would just as soon leave faith and doctrine to others who then dictate to them what they need to believe. And the result is that they remain woefully ignorant about what they believe and why and have only a dim awareness of God. And I think a lot of people in the Catholic Church have that mental attitude that the priests tell them what they need to know, what they need to do without understanding God. And I think the Catholic Church has got a lot to answer for with some of their teachings. John Calvin wrote, Faith rests not on ignorance, but on knowledge. And this is indeed knowledge, not only of God, but of the divine will. A Christian's growth in the knowledge of God and his will is vital to Paul for two reasons. Knowledge of God is essential for proper living. We do not lack, we, we don't lack knowledge in this age. But unfortunately, the knowledge explosion is not translated into wiser living. We possess lots of know-how, but little appreciation for knowing who made things as they are and knowing where everything is being directed. So those who are enemies of God in their minds and hearts have consigned themselves to dark ignorance and produced a society where immorality and other evil behaviour are at home. To be holy, that is without blemish and free from accusation, in such a society requires spiritual insight that directs one against going, one in going against the tide. Such knowledge about God does not have a saving function because we are saved by faith. Knowledge, however, is a means by which one grows in faith, which in turn leads to a life pleasing to God. I remember back in 1969 when I was in Kutamundra, we went to um, a vacation Bible school and they gave us a memory verse from Zechariah 9.16. I can't remember the verse, but that was one of the things that they taught us for that week. 
And if I just relied on what I learned back in 1969, I'd still be back in 1969, not where I am today. A strong faith requires that we can recognise the truth, thinking through carefully and allow it to permeate our lives. You ever read a passage in the Bible and you go, wow, I can feel that. I can relate to that. I can understand that. It's permeating into our lives. The opposite of understanding God's will is a life given over to foolishness. Ephesians 5, 18. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the Lord's what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And the second reason Paul gives is a thorough knowledge of God's will enables us to shield ourselves from false teaching. The great danger for those who are not solidly grounded in their faith is that they will unknowingly allow the values and practices of our culture to dilute it beyond recognition. We wind up with mushy sentimentality or worse, bizarre beliefs reinforced by herd mentality. Christians may not know more than others, but they should know better. For Christians to grow in the knowledge of God, the church needs to be a rigorous biblical and moral training ground. The need for moral discernment derived from biblical Christianity could not be greater. And people have not allowed the biblical truth to penetrate their hearts and minds. They fail to read it for themselves. And when they do, they do not read it systematically or have a context for understanding. The result is a woeful degree of biblical ignorance that has grave consequences. Christians must be willing to study God's word to achieve a greater understanding of their faith. So we've got first trait is bearing fruit in every good work. The second trait is growing in the knowledge of God. The third trait is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And knowledge alone does not enable obedience. Paul asked God to give his readers not only spiritual discernment of his will, but also the divine, the divine power to do it. That power has been revealed in the resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Romans 6.4 That same power gives Paul strength to, to, to toil for the gospel and empowers other Christians to live lives pleasing to God. Christianity is not a do-it-yourself religion. The believer can only be strong through God. Paul recognises, however, that Christian life and growth takes place in a world antagonistic both to his faith and to his good works. Christians will meet with adversity and affliction, as we're reminded quite often. 
but that requires great endurance and patience. Endurance, which is the power to cope and be content in all circumstances, from Philippians 4, 11 to 13, even when we are deluged by suffering. It's the opposite of complaining, grumbling or becoming despondent. When our faith in Christ fails to deliver ease or greater earthly rewards, but instead brings persecution and suffering, those who endure do not abandon their faith for something that looks less demanding and more promising. Endurance refers to hanging on during tough times. Imagine if the if the if the if the gospel was everything will be okay. Everything's hunky dory. If you become Christian, if you if you become a follower of Christ, everything will be fixed. Why would we want that? Because we we would try and do it ourselves. But instead, if we if we have the persecution and the the pressures and stuff that society delivers to us these days, we know that with our faith in Christ, because of the solid foundation that he's given us, that we can stand against what society is giving us. So the first trait is bearing fruit in every good work. The second is growing in the knowledge of God. The third is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that we may have great endurance and patience. And the fourth one, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. In verses 12 to 14 of Colossians 1, Paul specifies three reasons for joyfully giving thanks for what God the Father has done in Christ. Paul says that God has qualified them to share in the inheritance. He's qualified each one of us. Nearly all Jews regard the inheritance that was given to them through Abraham and Moses and right down the line. They reckon that it is exclusively Israel's. And like most heirs, they don't want to share it with any strangers or first people who are not entitled to it. Because they believe that it rightfully belongs to them alone. Now, Gentiles have no natural right to the inheritance. But through Christ, they, we, have been made full legal heirs. Romans 8.14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God 
and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. Secondly, Paul affirms that God has rescued them from the harsh rule of the power of darkness. Paul characterises the life of Gentiles before becoming Christians as an ethical and theological darkness. And in Ephesians 5, we see in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of Live as children of light, for the fruit of, of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth and find out what pleases the Lord. So immorality, anger, strife, vengeance, violence and oppression, they thrive in that sort of society, the darkness society. And the Gentiles were in bondage to the prince of darkness and his evil dominion. We all need deliverance from a wasted life of sin and from the cosmic powers that keep us captive in our sin. In Christ, God tears believers away from this dark power and moves them into light. And the third reason, like victorious kings who uproot whole populations and resettle them in other lands, God has brought believers from the tyrannical rule of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Changing lordship means changing kingdoms. The image picture the image pictures a reverse exile. You know, in, in an exile, a king comes in or a country comes in and takes people and relocates them to another land. And then they've got to do what that society does. What Paul is saying here is that God has brought us out of our darkness, our kingdom of darkness, and brought us into his light. So we have changed rulers in our lives. Because God loves the Son, all those who belong to him are also objects of divine love. Paul affirms in Romans that no force in heaven or earth, physical or supernatural, can separate his followers from God's love. Romans 8.34 Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, 
neither the present nor the future, nor the powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Since these powers cannot obstruct our relationship with God, we need not fear them and we must not pay them homage. And Peter caps off the mention of, his, of the beloved son with benefits he has bestowed on us, namely redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ has removed the barrier of sin. The blessings of our final redemption have already broken into the present. Forgiveness is not simply a liberation from the past. It sets us free from present and the future. It opens the possibility of living a life worthy of the Lord. Paul says that the Colossians used to give their lives to sin, which brings only God's wrath. But they now give their lives to Christ, which brings joy and light. So, how can we live lives that are pleasing to God? By bearing God's fruit in every good work. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. By growing in the knowledge of God, studying his word, being strengthened with all power so that we may have greater endurance and patience. And finally, giving joyful thanks to God for our inheritance in whatever situation we find ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do anything to earn our salvation because you have given us our salvation as a free gift through your son. Lord, help us to grow in you. Help us to, to bear fruit in every good work. Help us to be strengthened with patience and endurance and help us to give thanks to you and help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.